Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our second look at the red-headed murders. Before we dive into this week's case, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, or The Deathcast. You can find me on most social media websites. If you're interested in becoming a member of the Coffee Club, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the Donate button, get your name shouted out for donating to the show by becoming a member of the Coffee Club. If donating through the Coffee Club is not your thing, please consider becoming a Patreon by going to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can get access to exclusive content only available on the Patreon feed. And lastly, if you enjoy this show, Please like and subscribe wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. Leave a five-star review and share the show on social media. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, find yourself a nice comfy chair. Get yourself something to drink. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. So we are taking our second look at what has come to be known as the Redhead Murders or the Bible Built Stranglings. We left off last week. We were talking about the murder of Elizabeth Lamont and the possibility of her ties to Terry Rasmussen. This week we're going to be starting by looking at what has come to be known as the Pulaski County Jane Doe. On April 20th, 1985, skeletal remains were found about a quarter of a mile south of Wrightsville Park Road in Wrightsville, Arkansas. This particular location is about 75 yards west of the Arkansas River. The remains were found face down while the clothing was found roughly 70 feet southwest of the river, near the banks of the Arkansas River. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of information on this particular case. According to the Doe Network, the victim is listed as being 30 to 40 years old, with race being white, gender female, and an estimated height of 5 foot 3, and a hair color of blondish red. It's also known that at some point prior to being murdered, the victim had suffered a break of their left femur, which by the point of discovery had healed over to some extent was also evidence of excessive dental work having been performed on this victim. Unfortunately, however, law enforcement has been fairly tight-lipped concerning this case and really hasn't given out any other identifying information or even information concerning a suspect. This could be for a number of reasons Law enforcement may have an idea of who the victim was as well as who the perpetrator was, and they might be holding that back as they search for more evidence 
but it's also possible that law enforcement has some more information from the crime scene or the condition of the body that they are afraid if they give out more information about this case may tip off the killer or possible killers of this woman to get rid of incriminating evidence. This has happened in prior cases. If you'll remember the zebra killings from a couple of months ago, Nancy Pelosi, the then mayor of San Francisco, actually tipped off the zebra killers about evidence that the police had allowing the suspects to get rid of said evidence. So this kind of thing does happen and police departments are very reserved on the information that they will give out. The next victim we're going to discuss was discovered on August 29, 1987 in Roan County, Tennessee. This case is different from the others in that the victim was actually set on fire after being murdered in an apparent attempt by the perpetrator to make identification impossible. What is known about the victim is as follows. The victim was aged between 35 and 50 years old, white female, 5 foot to 5 foot 8. Hair is said to have been brown, although the victim dyed it a reddish hue at some point prior to being murdered. Victim is known to have had breast implants, a hysterectomy, as well as a tracheotomy, with a mole visible on the left side of their back. A gunshot wound was located near the third thoracic vertebrae, which was discovered to have been an old wound as a 22 caliber bullet was lodged inside of the body against the spine. This victim had a good amount of dental work done with a full denture being recovered nearby the victim. The next victim was Stacy Lynn Chahorsky. Stacy was living in North Carolina at this period of her life and had informed her mother in January of 1988 that she was planning on hitchhiking to Michigan where her family was originally from and was never heard from again. So in late 1988, Stacy is found in Rising Fawn, Georgia, having been strangled to death. Her body was found lying on the northbound side of I-59 on the east side of that highway, not far from the Georgia-Alabama state line. Police initially suspected that the victim had been a hitchhiker and it was found that she had been sexually assaulted prior to being strangled to death. One thing of particular note is that Stacy did not have red hair. You're going to see things that state that she had brown hair to reddish blonde hair. 
I have seen no evidence to support that assertion. Any photograph that I have seen of her, she has dark hair, either brown or black. There is not a hint of red visible in it. On, as with many of these cases, Stacy's eventually went cold. That is, until 2021, when Ortham Inc., which is a DNA testing laboratory, became involved, and using familial DNA, they were able to identify her as Stacy Lynn Chahorsky age 19 at the time of her disappearance. They were able to do more than that, however, as because if you'll remember, I stated that Stacy had been sexually assaulted prior to being murdered. While law enforcement officials were able to obtain the DNA from her body at the time of discovery and were forward-thinking enough to hold on to that DNA, and again, using this same DNA company, they ran the man's DNA and eventually were able to discover who it was that had been responsible for the crime. A man by the name of Henry Frederick Haas Weiss, who at the time of Stacy's murder would have been 34 years old. Haas was a truck driver who drove from Chattanooga to Birmingham and then to Nashville along his route. And it's suspected that he encountered Stacy while on his route and sexually assaulted and then murdered her. Hoss had a pretty long rap sheet which included burglary, assault, as well as obstruction of police officers the fact that they had his DNA on file makes me curious as to whether or not he might have been implicated in other sexual assaults and the police just never made that public or not, as at least up until the 2000s, to the best of my knowledge, most states did not take DNA swabs from felonies. Hoss ends up dying in a stunt show accident because in addition to being a truck driver, he was also a stunt car racer. So he has this stunt, he ends up having an accident, ends up burning to death, which given what he has been accused of is rather a fitting end for old Hoss. On May 7th, 1990, roughly eight miles west of Decatur, Arkansas, off Highway 102 in Rogers, Arkansas, skeletal remains were discovered. Police had very little to go on initially as they only found partial remains. One of the things they did find, however, was the skull of this victim, as well as shotgun wadding from a shotgun shell. 
nearby, they also, upon further examination, found pellets from a shotgun underneath where the skull had been sitting, indicating, along with injuries to the skull, that the perpetrator had shot the victim in the head with a shotgun. The police began investigating, asking individuals if they recalled anything out of the ordinary during the last few months, and they found one neighbor who stated that at some point in February of 1990, they saw what they believed to have been a fire taking place in the general area where these remains were discovered, although they did state that they did not go to investigate as the area where the fire was burning was a regular area where people routinely dump trash. Now, the victim is believed to have been roughly 5 foot 5 in height, although hair color, eye, and weight are unable to be determined due to the fact that they only have skeletal remains to go off of. Police also theorized, due to damage that was done to the remains, that the victim may have been run over repeatedly in an effort to further obscure identification of the victim. Very few pieces of clothing or evidence were found nearby, although small pieces of women's clothing was discovered in the general vicinity having been burned. This case did go cold, but investigators did not give up on it entirely. On January 6th of 1995, police announced that they would not be able to do a facial reconstruction of the victim due to the damage that had been suffered to the skull. Over the next 12 months, the police submitted evidence to the Arkansas Crime Lab in a hope that they would be able to identify the victim's remains. However, these were unable to help with learning the identity of the woman. And the victim remained unidentified for well over a decade. On October 25th, 2022, the remains were identified as belonging to Donna Sue Nelton who was last seen in the fall of 1989. And police do have a suspect in Donna's murder. And it is a pretty good suspect. Donna's boyfriend at the time, George Allen Bruton. Bruton had spent time in and out of prisons during his life and in fact had been on the FBI's most wanted list for three months in 1979. The details of that particular case are as follows. Bruton took two families hostage in the state of Utah before wounding two law enforcement officials in the succeeding shootout, at which point he went on the run. 
Bruton was arrested on December 14, 1979 at Fort Smith, Arkansas. And I'm reading directly from his case file here. It shows you the type of individual that Bruton was. Quote, during the early morning hours of December 14, 1979, 10 FBI agents assembled in and near the mobile home park for a stakeout of Bruton's mobile home. At approximately 11.45 that morning, Bruton came out of his mobile home and locked one of the two outside doors with a padlock. He got into his Ford Ranchero and started driving out of the park. One vehicle, occupied by FBI agents, pulled in front of his truck, blocking its path. An agent got out of the car, identified himself as an FBI agent, and yelled for Bruton to stop. Bruton put his truck into reverse and backed into a van, which other agents had positioned behind him. As Bruton's truck came to rest against the van, agents disabled his truck by shooting into the radiator in the back tires. A shotgun blast sprayed his windshield, and he ducked below the back of the front seat. When Bruton rose again, he was holding a pistol and got out of the truck. He was hit by a shotgun blast and fell to the ground. His pistol was fired once, but he denies knowingly firing a shot. So George Bruton was a fairly shitty individual when he started going out with Donna Nelton. Unbeknownst to her, though... He was much worse than both herself or even the FBI could have known. After looking into George Bruton, officers discovered that in September of 1989, Bruton and some associates were seen disposing of Donna's personal belongings in a dumpster, they placed her belongings into large black trash bags and then threw them out. This was in Kansas City. Further, it was found that Donna's car was hidden inside of a storage unit that belonged to Bruton. Although, unfortunately for law enforcement, they were unable to make a case against him in this particular instance, but that's not to say that he got away scot-free. Bruton was eventually arrested and confined to life imprisonment on drug-related charges where he died in 2008. Now we're going to get into the investigation of all of these crimes. As I stated last week, both law enforcement and a high school sociology class have lumped a lot of these crimes together as having been perpetrated by one individual. At least as far back as 1985, this is just after the discovery of Elizabeth Lamont's body in Greenville, Tennessee. Investigators from Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi contacted the Federal Bureau of Investigation and asked them to take a look at the crimes that they had, believing that they may have a tr interstate serial killer on their hands. And the FBI looked at these cases 
and for the most part found that they really did not have a lot of similarities between all of these crimes beyond the fact that a some of the victims were found nude and b some of them had red hair so these states decide to have a conference where they start going over all of these crimes and they ruled out a good number of homicides, even ones that I haven't discussed as having been linked together. However, that doesn't mean that all of the cases weren't linked together. As I discussed in the beginning of last episode, there was a suspect in one crime and possibly two others and we're going to discuss this individual at this point. In March of 1985, an exotic dancer and purported prostitute by the name of Linda Shackey was picked up by a truck driver in Knox County, Tennessee. So the details of this assault are as follows. And I'm pulling them from an article written by John North of WBIR10news.com. The victim was dancing at a nude strip club called Catch One off of Interstate 40 in Knox County, Tennessee in 1985. Now, apparently this was a members-only club where in order to get in, you had to pay dues and present a membership card. So, on the night of March 5th, 1985, this truck driver by the name of Jerry Leon Johns, along with his brother, went to this strip club to watch the girls dance. Now, Johns was an independent truck driver during the 1970s and 1980s, and in 1985, he was 36 years old. Well, at the club, Johns encountered Linda Shackey, and after talking for a few moments, it was decided that once she got off from work, she would meet Johns at a nearby motel where she would have sex with him in exchange for $200. So Johns removed $200 bills from his wallet, he tore them in half, and he gave Linda two halves, explaining to her that she would get the other two halves after they consummated their encounter. Linda facilitated John's brother, Wayne, to have sex with another one of the dancers at the club, and when both girls' shifts were over, they drove their own vehicles over to a nearby Holiday Inn. Now, according to Linda, she hid the two halves to the $100 bills that Johns had given her inside of her car before going into the hotel. And Johns rented adjoining rooms for both himself and his brother. According to Linda, when she got inside of the room, Johns produced a gun and informed her that he was an undercover Texas Ranger. After having sex, Linda took a bath and walked out to her car 
with John's right behind her. Reaching her vehicle, John's forced his way inside of the car, again using the gun, before driving them back over to the strip club. In the parking lot to the strip club, John's then proceeded to rip off Linda's shirt, which he used to bind her hands and feet. He also made, took a strip and tied it around her mouth as a gag threatening to murder her repeatedly if she screamed or attempted to escape. Johns then drove down I-40 before finding a wooded area, at which point he pulled Linda's car off the road. He then dragged her from the vehicle. Some sources state that he forced her to walk at gunpoint, although given the fact that her hands and feet were tied, I find this hard to believe. At this point, Johns took a strip of Linda's t-shirt, wrapped it around her neck, and strangled her until she lost consciousness, tying the strip of t-shirt into a knot and leaving her for dead. He then fled the area, driving her car back to where his own vehicle was. Unbeknownst to Johns, however, Linda survived. Coming to lying in a ditch, she crawled out of it and made her way to the interstate, at which point she was able to flag down a truck driver. According to court documents, Linda was so emotionally scarred by what has happened, she was fearful that this truck driver and others who had pulled over to help her would in fact attempt to kill her as Johns has done and repeatedly begged them not to kill her as she recounted her story to them. After troopers arrived and got Linda's story, they brought her to a local hospital while they went in search of Johns and his brother. Linda had told them what rooms the two men were staying at in the Holiday Inn, and in fact, when the troopers arrived at the Knox County Holiday Inn, they found John's pickup truck in the parking lot. However, John's was not there, and while they were reconnoitering out in the parking lot, the officers saw Linda's Dotson approaching the hotel before stopping suddenly and taking off, at which point officers gave chase down I-40. Again, this is coming from News10WBIR.com article written by John North. Quote, After getting off at the business loop exit, the 280Z crossed the median and slid across another exit lane before coming to arrest. Inside the sports car, police found John's loaded gun. They found a lot more than that, however, inside of the vehicle. Upon searching John's person, they discovered $752 in cash, his membership card to the Catch One, a room key to hol the Holiday Inn, and they also observed John's crumpling up and throwing away two torn $100 bills. So John ends up being arrested, obviously, for attempted murder, false imprisonment, and numerous other crimes. 
and he ends up being sentenced to life in prison for these crimes. So, the other cases go cold. They really don't make much of a link between Johns and any of the other crimes which took place in the state of Tennessee. And I want to point that out here. I'm solely focused on the crimes that took place in the state of Tennessee at this point. Johns ended up dying in prison in 2015, and after his death, officers continued looking into him as well as the crimes that they suspected of him of, mainly the crimes that took place in and around Jellicoe, Tennessee. They began running his DNA, and what they found is that he had been responsible for the murder of Tina Marie Farmer, who, if you'll remember, was found on January 1st, 1985. And on December 18th of 2019, a grand jury in Campbell County, Tennessee, returned a verdict stating that had John still been alive, he would have been indicted for Farmer's murder. But there are others. You remember the case last week of Tracy Walker, who was the 15-year-old that was found on April 3rd, 1985, outside of Jellico. She was uh, the skeletal remains that they were able to recover the skull from. Well, Tracy had a piece of cloth torn from her t-shirt, wrapped around her throat, and knotted into a knot that was almost indistinguishable from the knots used on both Linda and Tina Farmer. So what I suspect, and I believe law enforcement will bear this out within the next few years, is that Jerry Leon Johns was the only quote-unquote red-headed murderer active during the 1980s. And I believe that he only operated in Tennessee, specifically in the Jellicoe area, Knox County, out to Pleasant View, which as I stated, I believe is three and a half hours, something, give or take, from Jellico, think that was his hunting round. And the reason I say that is because Johns was a small independent truck driver, meaning that he didn't work for a big national company like Swift, so he would not have been going on these long runs that other truck driving serial killers were involved in. It's more likely than not that he was getting jobs from local companies who had used him in the past and would be driving from one place to another and along the way would be looking out for prey and if he happened to come upon it then he would pounce. I also suspect that in the coming years, as they look into these crimes further, 
law enforcement is going to discover that the rest of the cases were committed by individuals. And the reason I say that is there are too many discrepancies in the modus operandi of all of the other victims for them to have been tied into the cases that took place within Tennessee. And by that, I mean we have a number of victims who were found to have been murdered by other individuals, which therefore would eliminate Johns as there is no known link between Johns, the perpetrators of these other crimes, or the areas where these other crimes were committed at. But it's more than that. Johns is known to have murdered using ligature strangulation, i.e. tearing strips off of his victim's clothing and using that to strangle them. I have found no other victims barring one who was strangled using a piece of their clothing, and of that one other, that victim was killed using their own pantyhose, which of the two crimes that I am almost 100% certain John's committed, he didn't do that. He used their own shirts to and strangled them with it. He didn't go to the length of trying to pull something off of their body in order to strangle them. He, his was more a case of he used what was immediately at hand to remove his victim as quickly as possible. But there's more to that. The other cases, as we have seen, do not bear the same M.O. as what Johns is known to have done. Some of them were shot with a shotgun. One of them was set on fire and then run over. But also, Johns was incarcerated from 1985 onward, at which point the murders in Tennessee stopped the victims who had t-shirt ligatures around their throats stopped being discovered. So it is not only not probable, it's not possible he could have been involved in these other crimes. While I think that the sociology teacher's experiment with his students was a good exercise in team building, I don't believe that their conclusions were correct as they linked a total, I believe, of six cases to a single killer where the evidence shows us that Johns killed very probably 100%, at least two, and possibly three to four victims within that designated area of Tennessee that he's known to have operated at. That's not to say that he may not have committed other homicides, just that we know that there's a pretty good amount of evidence that links him to these crimes, while with the others that this class is trying to say are tied to these crimes, there is no evidence to link him to those crimes. There's no records of his truck having been in the area. There's no records of Johns himself having been in those areas. 
just why I think those crimes were separate from the Tennessee crimes. Was there a redhead serial killer? Yes, there was. I believe, though, that if you look at it, and law enforcement eventually is going to back me on this, the red-headed murders only took place within the state of Tennessee and are, in fact, the actions of Jerry Leon Johns and no one else. So there we have it, the second part of the redhead murders. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, these cases. Uh, you can reach me at iancorpsecreekpublishing.com if you want to discuss anything that I have gone over this week. I know this episode was slightly shorter than most of them, which is why I'll probably be dropping this on Monday as opposed to waiting an entire week to release it. With all of that said, I hope you have enjoyed this coverage of the Redhead Murders. If you're interested in becoming a member of the Coffee Club, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the donate button and become a member of the Coffee Club. Get a shout out. Don't forget to go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon for $2 a month. You can become a Patreon member of this show and help support its production. And please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is you find your favorite podcasts. They really do help get the show out to more listeners. All right. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.